Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Braco Diagnostics. Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to MRI Cast. Uh, this is episode 30. Uh, we are so glad that uh, we've got so many people subscribing, and we also want to be sure again thank uh, Brocco for their unrestricted educational grant. Um, with me on today's uh, session is uh, Kristen Harrington. Hello, Kristen. Hello, everyone. Joining us uh, for the first time on an MRI cast is Dr. Ali Parisha. He is from uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Hello, Ali, and welcome. Hi, Bill. Glad to be here. Before we get started, uh, since you're n- new, first time on the MRI cast, tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Oh, sure. oh, actually, even if you even if you do mind, uh, we're going to ask you. So, <laughs> um, well, there's not a whole lot to tell. So, uh, no, I'm Ali Pirasta. <laughs> I'm an assistant professor of radiology at uh, University of Wisconsin Madison. I'm the chief of MRI and the clinical director of PET MRI. Cool. One of these days, we're going to have to talk about PET MRI. That's just fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Uh, to me, for for some reason. Hey, we can um, fifty podcasts on that if you're game. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, that would be very cool. Um, so let's talk about body MRI kind of in 2024. And then I've, I've made some notes here and kind of things I'd like us to to talk about. A lot of people, uh, we hear from a lot of technologists and courses and stuff uh, that MRI interrography uh, is uh, a, a getting become pretty, pretty popular. I mean, it's, you know, as opposed to CT interrography, uh, obviously there's no ionizing radiation, but you also get much more uh, different types of tissue contrast. And uh, one of the things that invariably comes up, I know I've heard uh, from Kristen because she's done a lot of this in the pediatric world, is PrEP and the importance of patient PrEP for this. Uh, so Ali, what you, What's your stance on that? So I think PrEP is very important in MR interrography, right? You're trying to visualize bowel wall abnormalities. I mean, you're, of course, looking for uh, other abnormalities that could be associated with inflammatory bowel disease, its complications, such as abscess, such as fistula, such as bowel obstruction. One of the main things you're looking for is looking for, you know, bowel wall abnormality, right? If it's an active inflammatory bowel disease at the time, or if it's chronic slash fibrostenotic. So the preparation of the bowel and having a clean lumen, right? Having the bowel empty to be able to evaluate the bowel wall becomes very important. So oral contrast becomes very important, right? You want to be able to distend the small bowel adequately. We want our patients to have an NPO for at least six hours before they come to their MRI, and also administering an antiperistaltic agent to freeze the bowel peristalsis because we all know motion is the enemy of a good MRI image, right? So all of right. those things are very important to gain quality MR imaging in the setting of enterography. Well, it isn't 
uh, going back to the prep thing, one of the things I've always understood is that, uh, you know, going back to my days in x-ray, you know, heaven forbid, like, uh, <laughs> you know, barium enemas and stuff like that. Uh, I, in fact, used to have a radiologist when he'd walk out of a room after a barium enema and the patient was not well prepped. He had a he had a little acronym he would write on the uh, on the uh, on the requisition as a note. I won't go into what that acronym is, but it was basically the patient uh, was not well prepped. <laughs> they, they uh, you know, which could obviously be problematic on on MRI. I, I would assume on various sequences, uh, stool can in some cases I would expect be bright on MRI. Is that not correct? That's correct. Um, stool is inherently bright on your T1-weighted imaging um, very often. And of course, when you give contrast, you're hoping that you gain some brightness in the areas of active inflammation. So if the lumen is filled with um, bright stuff, you know, to keep it simple, then you may have a difficult time telling the difference, right? So uh, keeping patients NPO, instructing them, is, is very important. Some centers even offer enemas before performing the MR enterography. We don't do that here. Um, Bill, what it really comes down to in this day and age is uh, you know, doing every single step to try to get the ideal image versus improving access, right? A lot of places are struggling with providing access to patients in terms of an MRI exam, wait times are months in a lot of places, right? So we're also trying to keep the MRI accessible to our patients. So we don't necessarily perform the enema because it requires you know, additional staffing. Some centers we may not be able to have the nursing staff. Hence, we would be cutting access to MR enterography at some of our centers. So the system that we have works pretty well for us, which is, Communication with a patient, keeping them NPO for adequate amount of time before they come to their visit. And, you know, if they need to uh, use the bathroom, and we encourage them to use the bathroom before they start taking the oral contrast, right? And coaching mm -hmm. them yeah. through the intake of oral contrast so there's an even distribution of contrast within the small bowel lumen. And you don't want somebody to you know, take the entire thing in two minutes and just gulp it down and then wait another right. 50 minutes and take the second bottle, right? So those mm -hmm. are all those things that you can do um, to provide good access to MRI so patients don't mm -hmm. have to wait months and at the same time obtain a very good diagnostic image. And you've got to keep in mind, I'm not saying we don't evaluate the colon um, for inflammatory bowel disease, we do. But the main area of concern that we often have is a small bowel. That's where it very often, you know, hits the patient. So we want to make sure we have a very good small bowel prep. We have pretty good luck with the colon visualization. So overall, um, you know, we do pretty well with the routine that we have. Well, yeah, Ali, I just wanted to, to have you clarify. I think a lot of people that haven't really approached doing um, MRE studies that might want to. So we've talked about the bowel preparation, but I think it's important for people to understand, you know, giving the negative agent, I don't know, let's just say 
Breeze of lumen. Sometimes people actually, unfortunately, use water, um, which we know is absorbed very quickly. Versus the positive, you know, contrast agent being, you know, a gadolinium-based um, contrast agent. You want to explain, um, you know, how that's going to look on T1 versus T2, and maybe explain the differences between the two agents that we'll be giving. Sure, sure. That's a that's a very very good question. Um, Essentially, what you're alluding to is that if you put any sort of liquid in the bowel lumen, right, we drink water um, or your beverage of choice, um, things get absorbed, right? And one of those things that gets absorbed is water. And we don't want to confuse absorbed water with what we call edema, which is fluid in the bowel wall because of inflammation. So we want to keep that confounding effect from any ingested contrast to a minimum. And that's why we do not administer um, just any liquid to the patient, right? For example, Gatorade, let's say. So you want to stick with the appropriate type of negative contrast, as you mentioned, Kristen, so that the bowel lumen is nicely distended, but you do not absorb water into the bowel wall so it doesn't get confused with edema and you don't miss anything, right? So that's the whole point of actually administering the appropriate type of contrast. And trust me, everybody would want to administer something cheaper if it worked. The issue is it doesn't. So there is a reason that, you know, the exam costs us more money by administrating the, administering the appropriate type of contrast. So just don't do it for no reason. If water worked, we would do it. It just doesn't. <laughs> so don't don't try to cut corners. There's a good reason that that we use a you know a manufactured type of contrast, and there is a reason this type of contrast is manufactured because it works. Let me ask you this and see if if, if I'm mistaken on this. And if I am, everybody's going to know it. But then again, hey, you know, that's how you learn stuff, I suppose. Uh, the oral contrast agents that are uh, designed for use in MR enterography, the negative contrast agents, um, and, and I'm aware of two primarily, Volumen and uh, Breeza, uh, these contrast agents, uh, Ali, am I correct that they have a chemical in them called sorbitol, and that that chemical is, its function is for coating the bowel and not having it be absorbed? Correct. It's a bunch of effects, right? Uh -huh. Well, you know, we're talking about osmolality, right? We're talking about coating the bowel. We're talking about all those things in which way water crosses the epithelium and crosses the cell membrane. That's really um, the, the, the design to prevent the absorption through the mucosa slash submucosa. So you're, you're 100% okay. right. So the, the, it's specifically designed to have certain chemicals within the um, negative contrast agent to prevent exactly that effect. So, um, and the other thing is, the other negative part of the contrast uh, is, is it's actually the, um, uh, um, it's on T1-weighted imaging, right? We discussed that. This, the contrast is dark on T1-weighted imaging. It's bright on T2-weighted imaging, a normal bowel is dark on T2-weighted imaging. So you get the contrast on both sequences. And when you administer um, 
a gadolinium-based contrast and on T1-weighted imaging, they affected part of the bowel, quote-unquote, they acutely or actively inflamed part of the bowel hyper-enhances, and it means it enhances more than the normal bowel does. And if your contrast was bright, then you're trying to find a star in the middle of the day, you know, at 1 p.m., which you know what I mean, right? So um, right, right. That, those are the, the type of contrasts that these oral contrasts provide, both on T2 and T1-weighted imaging. Let me ask uh, one more thing before I want to move on to, to my next question. When we talk about, the, before we leave the oral contrast component, um, how do you determine how much of the contrast to give? I mean, it comes in bottles, and I can't recall right offhand how much is in a bottle, but typically people dose by, you know, number of bottles. Um, yep. How is it that you determine how much oral contrast to give? We usually do weight-based ba- weight bill. Um, so okay. if our patients, um, you know, these are our numbers, if they're 60 pounds um, or uh, lighter, we ask them to drink one bottle and we ask them to drink it over 60 minutes. If they are 60 okay. to 110 pounds, we ask them to drink two bottles over the same period of time. So it's not over two hours, you know, it's two bottles over 60 minutes. And for our patients who are heavier than 110 pounds, we ask them to drink, you know, three bottles over the 60 minute period. Okay. And one of the things we ask them to do is try to have them lie on the right side when they're drinking, right? We want it to empty through mm-hmm. the stomach appropriately. And if they have issues, of course, you know, we ask them to try to do it as much as they can for five, 10 minutes. Um, you know, we try to coach and encourage our patients to drink the whole thing. It's easier said than done. These are not easy to drink. It's not a small volume. We understand these are patients who have gastrointestinal issues, right? That's why they are coming for an MR enterography. So being understanding of the patient situation is very key and trying to coach them through it. Some of them may not be able to, and understanding that is also very important. And then, you know, sometimes we have them um, walk around the prep room between the bottles, right? So just give them a little bit of a break, have them walk around, get the contrast going down before they put the rest of it, you know, in their stomach. And you know, that's kind of an interesting point because I remember when I was doing uh, regular fluoroscopy back in the 1970 your business days, um, you know, in a small bowel, if it wasn't moving th- through, you'd have them take a walk, you know, and that would help. Um, lay on your right side, take a walk. So these are very old, old little, you know, things we use, tricks we used to do. And, and it's kind of important, I think, to remember those. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't call them the, old. I think they're just classic and traditional. <laughs> I think I like that. They're seasoned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As we all are getting. So I know that in pediatrics, because um, to the palate, um, it can be very difficult, especially based upon their weight, how much um, you're giving. For example, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Volumen comes in 450 ml bottles. And again, they're drinking it over a period of time. Um, I was going to ask you, um, Ali, if you're, you know, I know you said don't use Gatorade. So it's a little bit of a tiered question. Um you were saying, you know, one to two bottles, but what um, 
agent are we discussing when you say, you know, up to three bottles, if I think you said over 110 pounds. And then, you know, with the volumen, because to the palate, it wasn't super pleasing. And again, like I said, in some of the patients, we had to use, you know, the NG tube. So they were able to tolerate any of it because it's difficult for any age group, especially the pediatric population. But um, we would use a no sugar-based, non-sugar-based flavoring. And so, um, you know, can you just address, you know, what agent were you were saying, you know, the three bottles and you were doing weight-based dosing and the period of time, you know, the 60 minutes. Can you um, explain, you know, why you would not want to use something sugar-based? And maybe you did already. I just didn't catch it. I know I heard you say, you know, we don't use Gatorade. We don't use these things for no reason, but I just don't want people using, you know, Kool-Aid, <laughs> which is definitely old school. I don't think no, we no. want people doing that, but can you kind yes. of like speak to that a little bit? Sure, sure. So to clarify, we use Breeza. Um, I'm not advertising for Breeza. That's what we use. Um, we have found it to be um, um, okay on the palate. Um, we haven't had many problems with it. And has a nice has a nice nose and a and a nice finish, right? Sure, <laughs> it looks pretty. Like you could buy it at QT if you think about the bottles and and CT. Uh, they have two flavors for CT and MR. They're they're pretty. Like when you go to the the gas station. Yeah, um, uh, I think I think I think you're gonna get, we're gonna get one shake from the Breeza people and probably a lawsuit from you know the so. Um, you know, this is the first and last time I do one of these with you guys. Uh, but no. So, no, you're right. A lot I of mean, people say that, Ollie, but, matter. you know, we, we keep dragging you back in. That's that's what happens. <laughs> so, no, this is, this is, a, this is, a, these are important things, right? Because you got to do whatever you can to help the patient um, drink this fluid, Um but but no, you're right. So um, when it comes to volumen, other people I know um, add things to it so that it becomes actually um, easier for patients and pediatric populations um, to drink them. And you know, people add mixes. You know, some some people do add Kool Aid mixes that have different flavors like cherry or fruit punch or orange or grape. The reason I mean, I said, I've, I've heard, I've heard crystal light. Yes. Uh, yes. The, the reason I said, you know, don't add, you know, a lot of um, like, don't use Gatorade as just an oral contrast. That's what I meant was because the way you absorb water in the small bowel is through a glute transporter that uses salt and sugar. Right. And like it just drives water in. And the moment you add electrolytes and sugar um, into a um, large volume of water and you have somebody drink that, which is the whole point, right? You want to hydrate them. You want it to absorb it. Then that's not a good negative oral contrast. That's what I was trying to say. And I think I – think It's going it's to get absorbed It's going to get absorbed, right? right? But adding right. a little bit of a flavoring to your approved negative contrast mm-hmm. agent is not a problem. And I think you should do that. I just don't think you should like dilute it with Gatorade and say, oh, it tastes better yeah. now and it's easier to drink. That's a big mistake. <laughs> Helping yeah, you right. And I think that's what Kristen wanted me to clarify probably. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Let, let me ask you one this. One thing that's very important. Yeah. Never in my life I have talked so much about oral contrast for MR enterography. So this is well, you know. really good. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, we we, we yeah, like to. Just we like a, to. a lot of people really, honestly, when I've done the the talks over the years, they they really don't understand as far as the technologists that are approaching this, and they don't understand the difference between the negative agents, why you use them, versus the positive, and yeah. you know which one is going to, like I said earlier, you know, show bright on T one, uh, you know, dark on you know T one, based upon you know which type of agent yeah. you're using. Honestly, we don't know that stuff until we start doing it. And I think it's just really important to, to clarify it. So that's why we made you go into so much depth no, about it to teach all of us that, are, you know, haven't done it before. We need to, we need to get your brain and use it. No, I, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's a lot of things that may seem obvious to one of us is not as obvious to the other person. Right. And that's just a matter of exposure and, you know, we all have different expertise and I learn different things from our lovely technologist every day. And it's, it's really a mutually educational experience. So, um, I didn't mean that in a negative way. I just, you know, I <laughs> I'd never thought about how much actually, how important it is to consider those details, you know, when those details are fairly trivial to us. So it doesn't mean yeah. that to everybody. Right. So. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this one other thing before, and then we'll talk about IV contrast, and then we'll move on to another uh, another topic. But um, in in MR enterography, there are um, uh, you, you will use uh, a, a anti peristaltic because some of the sequences you want to see the bowel moving, and then you want to freeze the bowel motion. So you use an anti-peristaltic drug. There are typically two that I've known people to use, either uh, glucagon or scopolamine. So my question to you, Ali, is which one do you use and the reasoning behind your choice? Sure. We use IV glucagon. And the reason behind that is that it has essentially an immediate um, effect. We administer it. It immediately freezes bowel peristalsis. We actually have done pre and post imaging to demonstrate that effect for a sanity check. And the, the difference is fairly impressive. Um, we don't use lefsin. Um, the effect of lefsin, number one, it, you know, if you take it orally, it takes time to kick in. Number two, you don't have that type of flexibility when you're trying to acquire both semi imaging as well as non peristaltic imaging, right? Is that a word? Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, um, the effect oh, of I think we usually say anti peristaltic or. Or, is it, or you mean motility sequence where you Mo want the bowel motility, moving, right? Like motility. Yeah, that's a good sequence yeah. to talk non about. Motile sequence. We, we can come up with different words for this. That, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, they're they're, they're going to trend, and I'm going to hear about it from my colleagues. But um, so so we want to acquire sending imaging first, right? We want to see if the bowel is peristalsing, if it's moving, if it's moving the contents through. That helps us determine areas of um, fixed strictures. That's important. Those areas are uh, disease, and it's important to note those. Um, but then, once we want to give contrast, then we don't want the bowel to move. So we can evaluate the bowel wall, right? And that's when our technologists go in. They give one dose of uh, glucagon. If the patient is 60 pounds or lighter, we give half a milligram, one injection. They come out. We do our pre and Dynamic post-contrast imaging, that's IV contrast, of course. 
if they are heavier than 60 pounds, we'll give one milligram of glucagon, okay? And it works really well. And then, you know, it wears off fairly quickly, right? So uh, within a matter of like minutes, I should say, by the time we're done with it, uh, we're done with our imaging, the effect is gone. And then, you know, it, it, it works out pretty well. So let me ask you about, so this, this last thing here about the IV contrast. Um, of course, gadolinium-based contrast agents been around for a long time. And, and over the last year, uh, we've had introduced a new contrast agent, IV contrast agent on the market, uh, gadopiclinol being the chemical name. Uh, the Brocco trade name that they sell it under is VUA, but, um, I, and I've used the term gadopiclinol for quite some time prior to it being approved. So I guess I'm kind of stuck in that mode of using that term. Uh, Sally, do you see any advantages of uh, gadapiclinol agents over the legacy agents that we've been using? I mean, that's a very good question, Bill. And I think, you know, this discussion goes... I try. I try. I try. Have we done this before? So this is a good question. And it goes essentially well beyond MR enterography. Um, or just you know abdominal pelvic MR imaging. It essentially goes and uh, is relevant in you know just MR imaging with IV contrast in general. Um, Gadopiclinol is an agent that provides two key characteristics. Number one, it has the highest relaxivity of essentially any gadolinium-based contrast agent in the market. And by highest relaxivity, what we mean is just an oversimplified way of saying it. it's the brightest one, right? You want your contrast agent to be bright so that it gives you um, a difference between the tissue that you're trying to characterize as normal as versus abnormal and the other tissues in the body. Okay, so um, before gadopiclinol, the agent that was readily available with the highest relaxivity um, on the market, and it was you know, the extracellular agents, I should say, was multi-hands. And gadopiclinol has essentially twice the relaxivity of that. And hence what you can do is you can administer essentially half the dose of the contrast agent and achieve, in theory, um, the same amount of quote-unquote brightness that you're hoping to see on your image. And we have done some internal... Um, control. We compared multi-hands versus gadopiclinol uh, in our patients who, you know, had exams when we used multi-hands and, you know, when we choose gadopiclinol, we compared the images and that actually holds based on our experience. Okay. The other thing that gadopiclinol brings to the table is its macrocyclic structure. Now, mm -hmm. there are two main types of gadolinium-based contrast agents based on structure. Again, of course, there, you can classify things into several types, but for the purposes of this discussion, we're talking about cyclic, macrocyclic versus linear. And the macrocyclic agents um, are those that, you know, chelate and encapsulate the gadolinium ion in a cage, as opposed to the linear agents where, you know, what is surrounding the gadolinium ion to make it non-toxic is in a linear form. And you can imagine you can hang on to something much tighter if you hold it in a cage as opposed to grabbing around it 
um, in just a linear format, right? So I think sometimes it's referred to as closed chain versus open chain. So closed chain being the macrocyclic versus the open chain being a linear. Yep, 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 yep. And yep, you can exactly think about it that way as well. You're right. So there is a theoretical increased safety using a macrocyclic agent over a linear agent. Okay, so um, you could you, you could have used multi-hands, for example, and get the same relaxivity, but the fact that you're using a macrocyclic agent, number one, and administering less of the gadolinium, that provides a higher theoretical safety profile. Okay, and here, so I said that, but I have to say two more things. Number one, it's a theoretical safety profile. Okay, essentially all available commercially available gadolinium-based contrast agents in this market in the United States are safe, are extremely safe, okay? Um, when used, of course, appropriately. Number two, multi-hands, which is a linear agent, and EOVIST, which is also a linear agent, are extremely safe. And there hasn't been a case of NSF reported associated with these agents when they have been appropriately used in the recent years. One of the one of the interesting things about that, let me just say let me throw this out and see what your thoughts on this. Uh, it's it's of course completely theoretical. But the interesting thing about EOVIST and MultiHands is these are the only two agents currently on the market that actually have a, a, a protein interaction. And uh, I had heard theoretically that people wonder if that protein interaction is it part of what maybe uh, makes them uh, safer? Obviously, no NSF cases as opposed to other linear agents. I, I just thought I'd heard that. I don't know if you've heard that as well. I've definitely heard that, and and and, and that potentially may be the case. But you know, Bill, you and I, and almost I should say, all of us in in radiology know that stability and safety of gadolinium-based contrast agents is a very complex topic. We try to do in vitro experiments and in animal models and everything and model the safety profile of these agents, right? But we really do not have as clear of a picture as when we move, you know, in vivo into patients and human subjects. We have a good idea and that a good idea is that these are safe agents. If your family member or you need an MRI with contrast, and without that exam, you cannot get that clinical question answered, not getting the MRI because you're afraid of contrast will do you probably a lot more harm than actually getting the MRI with contrast, okay? And that's the advice to my family, and that's what I would do for myself. Okay. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, and the other thing, I guess, for folks to keep in mind going to the safety of this uh, before we get off of this and on another topic, um, with interrography patients, you often have uh, repeat visitors, frequent flyers. You know, they come in a lot. They're one of those people that's going to be, you know, MS patients, uh, other types of patients that are going to be getting multiple doses of contrast over their lifetime. And there's nothing wrong with taking the approach, well, if you've got somebody that's going to get multiple doses over a lifetime, let's give them as little GAD as we possibly can, but yet still answer the question. I fully agree with that, right? It's the ALARA principle. We use it for 
radiation exposure. So ALARA, A-L-A-R-A, as low as reasonably achievable. And of course, the R is important, reasonably. But if you can administer the, f the least amount of gadolinium and still get your answer, there's really no argument why not to, okay? Um, so some people can argue cost. Of course, we're not here to talk about cost because we can't talk about cost, right? Cost is a very complex thing depending on where you get your contrast agent, how much you use it, um, how many agents you use, etc. But just you know, putting that aside for a second, um, there's really no good argument not to use the least amount of gadolinium if you get that same exact image quality or even arguably better compared to some of the other agents that have a lower relaxivity um, than half of gadopiclinol. And I've I've heard that argument, not argument, but the discussion uh, with radiation dose, for example, in CT. Yeah, you can cut the radiation dose back, and that's all well and good. But if you cut it back too much, then you get a non-diagnostic study, and you still radiate the patient. Correct. If you're going to give if you're going to give gadolinium, yeah, you can reduce the dose. But if it doesn't answer the clinical question, you're still giving the patient gadolinium uh, and expose them to, um, you know. Uh, Gadolinium, but not only that, I mean, even though it's extremely, extremely rare, but uh, if a patient needs gadolinium, you, you know, you need gadolinium uh, and to answer the question. Speaking of um, not anything we've been talking about, I had somebody send me an email the other day talking about asking me about my what I knew about whole body MRI. And um, I told them, I, you know, I don't know, I, you know, what I've read and, and things like that. I've not had a lot of clinical experience with that. I think you mentioned to me at one point in time that you do uh, some whole body MRI imaging. Is that, did I understand you correctly? You did. Um, we do have a whole body MRI uh, service here at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, boy, this is this is a controversial topic, right? Um, yeah, because I'm going to tell you what I've heard and seen, and I just want to know, so what do you use it for? I mean, what's the um, purpose, I guess? We have um, a clinical service that takes care of patients who have um, genetic predisposition to certain malignancies. So these are folks that have a higher risk of getting cancer because they're born with a certain condition, okay? Um, we do screening for cancer um, in normal people at a certain age, or if they have risk factors, we change that age, right? Classic examples are mammography, colonoscopy, low-dose lung screening, etc. okay? Now, for these patients, um, they can get cancer almost anywhere. They can get sarcomas, you know, they can get brain tumors. It's a very unfortunate thing. So the goal is to detect these things early. Now, when you want to screen someone, and forget about the risks of screening for a second, okay? We'll, we'll get to that. You want to screen a patient, um, you have to see, you have to understand what your population is. So these patients have genetic mutations. So you don't want to expose them to ionizing radiation because you don't want to do more damage. So MRI becomes the optimal modality to screen them for certain cancers. 
it doesn't detect everything, right, folks? Like if MRI worked for colon cancer, then everybody would be getting an MRI as opposed to an invasive colonoscopy or virtual CT colonography, right? So there is a reason we have other tests. So these patients appropriately get colonoscopies, potentially upper endoscopies, um, breast MR, dedicated breast MRIs, you know, as opposed to MRI whole body. So they get additional screening as appropriate. But for their soft tissue tumors and let's say brain tumors or adrenal tumors for patients who have multiple endocrine neoplasia uh, syndromes, they come to whole body MRI. So they have a risk of cancer, all right? So these are the patients where we do screening whole body MRI with gadolinium-based contrast agents because we need it. Like without gadolinium-based contrast agents, we can't uh, be, you know, we, we could be missing stuff, especially in solid organs. All right. Now, I have a feeling your question is for other people, for everybody who doesn't have a genetic predisposition. And if you, you know, happen to be on social media, I'm not on social media, but if you happen to be on social media and you see somebody get a whole body MRI and say, that was an amazing thing. I am in great health, right? Um, I have seen a couple of these come through from these third-party um, boutique services or um, to, to, for us to have an overread. Sometimes, you know, patients come in for a second opinion. They get a second opinion from our clinicians here. And as radiologists, we uh, are also clinicians, so we provide our second opinion about their imaging. Um, I want everybody to know that not all whole body MRIs are created equal, just like not all MRIs are created equal. You acquire different flavors of imaging, different pulse sequences, different image qualities, depending on how much time and effort you spend on your scanner and how much time you want to spend inside the scanner as a patient. So the sample images that I have seen for some of these patients who have come in, you know, Bill, they get like one set of T1 fat sat and a diffusion of the prostate and that's it. And no oh contrast. Lord, that's it? So, yeah. And, and at that point, first of all, the first thing I do is I call the referring clinician who sent this exam for a second opinion from us. And I say, you know, because I'm providing an opinion, I provide an official read, this would be a bill for the patient. I don't want to be <laughs> yeah. doing that because I'm going to call, I usually call them and I say, listen, I will not be able to add anything to this patient's care other than just cost by reading this film. If you really want to know what's going on and they really want to want to get a whole body MRI, they actually need to get a whole body MRI with IV contrast with appropriate sequences, right? We do T2 with FATSAT, we do T1 pre and post contrast. But the problem, because if you, if you want to get appropriate screening for every single organ, such as breast and prostate, you have to do the dedicated sequences for those organs. And now you're talking about an exam that if you include the brain and the pituitary, you're talking about an exam that's like two hours long if you want to do it right. So if you spend 30 seconds in an MRI scanner or 15 minutes and somebody gives you a clean bill of health, that's not doing you any good. There is no reassurance in that, okay? If it's positive, then you have to start chasing 
something that may or may not be cancer, right? So let's say you get one of these exams and there is a ditzel in your liver, right? There's a, there's a lesion in the liver or in, in, in part of the spine. Then you get sent for either additional imaging or you get sent for a biopsy. Well, additional imaging comes at a cost. Now you're worried that, oh my God, do I have cancer? While you very well may not have cancer. So you go through that emotional roller coaster, right? Or you end up in not getting a definitive answer based on imaging. And at that point, you need a biopsy. Well, biopsy is putting a needle in someone. I'm not saying biopsy is a bad thing to do. Biopsy is a good thing to do when you have a good reason to do it, okay? So some of these poor patients may end up with a biopsy, the potential complications for nothing. So there is a reason that we do not screen everybody for everything. And the reason for that is all screening has a risk. And that risk is only justified when we have demonstrated a benefit from that procedure. And in absence of that, you're getting exposed to a potential risk. Well, one of the things you, you mentioned, you mentioned screening, and, and I had uh, heard this about some other, other things in, in the past. If, if you have a screening tool, if you have an exam that's used for screening, um, you'll, you'll accept some and you will understand that you will get some false positives, at which point you would you know, have to investigate further. But what you don't want in a screening exam is a false negative. Right. I mean, you don't want to say, yeah, I don't see anything. And then you wind up with something. So, for example, uh, I had heard this comparison. Chris uh, and you weigh in on this one. You have done some breast work. But like, for example, mammography, uh, it's a it's a decent screening tool, but you can still get false negatives. And if you compare it to, say, for example, uh, uh 2D time of flight of a carotid, you'll get false positives, but you really don't get false negatives. You know, if it's normal, it's normal. Um, and so from a screening standpoint, that's, that's a really good 2D time of flight of carotid is a really good screening tool. Um, but whole body screening to say, yeah, you, we give you a clean bill of health, you know, live long and prosper. Uh, that could, that could be problematic, correct? That would apps that could, that would absolutely be problematic because, as I said, number one, you don't know what you're missing. Number two, um, you don't know how much harm you're going to cause the patient by finding something that's probably that could be a nothing, right? And as you said, this sensitivity and the specificity for all these approved screening tools has been studied extensively which some of them still remain controversial, by the way, despite how much we have read about them, you know, and how much we have known about them. But we have been able to demonstrate some benefit from these tests. And as you said, Bill, you know, I mean, there is, there are courses and classes and, you know, topics of discussion regarding if you want your screening test to be you know, sensitive versus specific and how so, and it depends on your disease process and its prevalence and how rare it is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's such a complex topic than just coming out and saying, oh, you should get a whole body MRI to make sure there's nothing wrong with you. I think it's just a false statement. 
Now, I'm not saying, you know, down the line, we may not be able to prove that, right? Maybe some years from now, when we, if somebody does the right study and we do the right study and we demonstrate a benefit from whole body MRI, somebody's going to quote this podcast and say, this guy was an idiot in 2024. But at this, in this day and age, we don't have that data. I mean, is it an obligation for us to go investigate and you know, find this data? I mean, that's a very expensive study and um, there's some incentive to look into that. But um, it, at, at this point, you know, folks should be aware that number one, the MRI that they get doesn't find everything. Number two, the quality of the whole body MRI is very variable depending on which center they go to. And the incentives of you know, whoever is doing the exam may not necessarily align with the incentives of the individual who gets the exam, right? And that's how much do you want to see? Um, you may end up with procedures that have more harm to you for potentially benign findings. And there is a chance that you may find a cancer that you may, you know, be able to cure or treat. But the happy story is not always the case. And people should still undergo the routine screening for specific organs, as I mentioned, as recommended per guidelines per their primary care physicians. Yeah, I, I think I had mentioned to this friend of mine, I said, you know, one of the one of the things that that would worry me about it or reason I would recommend unless you've got a problem if you've got no problems then don't go looking uh but you know is this problem i've heard it called incidentalomas right so the incidental finding oh we found this we don't know what it is and so to your point then they go and they have a biopsy or they go and have this additional screening for something that's a nothing and and that I see that as a big problem out of these things as well, which increased overall healthcare costs, you know? Oh, absolutely. And then cost is something that we didn't even like dive into, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, everything you have said is absolutely correct. Um, one last thing before we get out of here, uh, let's talk a little bit about dynamic liver imaging. And people have been doing this for years, so we don't really need to go, I don't think, into uh, all kinds of details on this. But uh, we've done a couple of podcasts on this, and we, we kind of like to get uh, hear different opinions on this. Um, first off, I, I would say you know, as far as the gadapiclinol advantages are concerned over legacy agent, it's the same as we've discussed, right? Lower dose of gadolinium uh, overall with this, the same effect. And I think that's been shown well in studies. But with dynamic liver imaging, there's, there's two things here. One of them is, uh, you know, the timing the, the timing of the contrast and what phases do you like to see? So we'd like to ask you that from a protocol standpoint, how, how do you like to see it done? What do you, what do you expect to get from this dynamic uh, sequence? No, that's a great question. I think um, that's independent of any contrast agent that you use. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, CT or MRI, right? So uh, mm -hmm. for liver imaging, you would like to see, a pre-contrast image, of course, and then what we call a hepatic arterial or a late arterial phase. And that is when you have contrast in the hepatic arterial system, in the portal venous system, but not in the hepatic venous system. 
Okay. And uh, this is very important uh, to generate reproducibly. There are a lot of lesions that depend on this accurate timing. The most notable one is hepatocellular carcinoma in our cirrhotic patients. Okay. That appropriate hepatic arterial phase um, can show you lesions that demonstrate early enhancement. And then you're looking for washout on the delayed phases, which at that point, it's the portal venous phase. It's about you know, approximately 40 seconds after the hepatic arterial phase. And then some people do like a, a one minute after that. Okay. So, um, so yeah, that's really um, what, uh, what we were um, acquiring when it comes to dynamic imaging. When we administer extracellular contrast agents, such as gabapiclinol, um, multi-hands, um, other examples include gadavis, dotaram, right? These are the ones that are available on the market. Um, that's kind of the end of the story, right? Or you get a coronal. I know you're going to say, oh, how about bringing the patient back an hour later and when you give him multi-hands and do hepatobiliary imaging? No, like we, we, don't, we don't do that, Bill. Um, for those patients, we give EOVIST. If you need hepatobiliary imaging um, or characterize a lesion based on its hepatocellular um, uh, profile, such as FNH versus an adenoma, right? We just give EOVIST. And for EOVIST, we do the same exact thing, but we just do uh, delayed imaging at 15 to 20 minutes, okay? Um, and we do high flopangle imaging to take advantage of that um, T1 shortening of EOVIST in the liver um, at 35 degrees. I really think people should do that. Otherwise, you're not really exploiting the characteristic of the contrast agent, right? Um, of course, with EOVIST, um, we have this transient um, uh, tachypnea where patients are unable to hold. Some patients are unable to hold their breath during the arterial phase. That's one of the main reasons we don't use it for HCC primarily, right? Because if we mess up that arterial phase, then a good chunk of the study is not diagnostic anymore. Yeah, so basically I'm saying if you if you really need, depending on what type of lesion you're looking for, if you really need the arterial phase, then you're going to go with the standard uh, nonspecific agent, uh, extracellular fluid space agent. Yeah. But if that delayed phase is important, then, then you would go with the hepatocellular agent. Um, that's what most people, um, I don't want to say most people, that's what some people do. Ours, our approach is actually um, slightly different. So if we have a non-serotic liver, and we're trying to characterize a lesion um, de novo. Uh, it's the first time that an MRI has been obtained to characterize the lesion. And patient mm -hmm. doesn't have other cancer, so we're not necessarily dealing with known um, primary malignancy and looking for mets to the liver. We actually start with EOVIST. So patient comes in on cirrhotic liver, found a lesion on CT or ultrasound, unknown need further characterization. We start with EOVIST, Bill. And the reason we okay. do that is um, we diagnose our hemangiomas essentially in our single shots and you know pre-arterial and portal venous and maybe the one-minute delayed image, the two-minute delayed image. And that gives us plenty to differentiate cyst hemangiomas, right? The other very common offenders are your adenomas and your FNHs. 
And at that point, you really use um, your pre-contrast T1, M- T1 weighted imaging to see if the lesion looks like background liver and if it's a hepatocellular and origin and if it retains contrast, right? Versus it doesn't at that point, you're trying to differentiate your FNHs adenomas or then you end up with a biopsy if it just doesn't fit into any of those frames, right? Or, you know, short-term follow-up imaging if you're not necessarily suspicious. What that does for us, it's, you know, the other model uses the extracellular agent first, right? And a lot of times you just end up bringing the patient back to confirm the FNH versus the adenoma, right? But if when we do the EOVIST first, we, we often avoid that scenario. I'm not saying our practice is necessarily right or the other people are right. It, 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 somebody has to do like a legitimate cost analysis and callback or whatever. It really works in my experience here. And I think that's, I've, I've exposure to both systems where I trained, we did extracellular first. Now that I'm um, staff here, we do uh, hepatobiliary first. I really like this model. I think it works pretty well. So the, the last thing I want to mention here is just to stress to the people uh, listening, the imp- really importance of timing. Even in this day and age, I still p- see people, it's, it's rare, but I've still run across sites where they'll basically inject the gadolinium, wait 20 seconds or some predetermined amount and then do the scan. And, and you're going to miss lesions because, uh, you know, it really needs to be timed. What timing technique do you guys use to time that? I'm going to stay vendor neutral here, if that's okay with you, Bill. Um, sure, absolutely. Three, yeah, that's fine. All three MRI vendors have techniques and capabilities at this point of detecting the contrast bolus in the okay patients coming with different cardiac outputs patient coming with different um which is dictated by the ejection fraction and the heart rate right so the amount of time it takes for the contrast bolus uh to make it from the injection site it's a peripheral iv most of the time right to the aorta and where you want it to go is variable for each patient so having a fixed amount and it's simply unfortunately um, unacceptable unless you don't have the capability of tracking the bolus. But we use a bol- we, we essentially use an automatic uh, bolus tracking system where we put the tracker in the distal thoracic aorta. And once the bolus is tracked, the scanner will tell you, I'm going to be imaging at 14 seconds. And this gives you plenty of time to start the breath hold instructions for the patient. And then once the breath hold has begun, the scanner will start scanning. We get very nice reproducible hepatic arterial phase on almost every single one of our scans. It just simply works. Okay. Um, there was, this is a funny story, there was one patient that kept coming. And, you know, I noted every single time their hepatic arterial phase is very late. I mean, sorry, it's super early. It, it just only, it only had a smidgen of contrast in the hepatic artery, and that's it. So the system was failing every single time. I went back to see what was happening. Well, this patient was bradycardic. Their heart rate was sitting at around like 34. So you can imagine the contrast is going to take a while to get there. And what this scanner did at that point, after 40 seconds, it actually has an automatic trigger. Ah. Yeah. Right, because it, it thinks that the contrast must have gone here, and I missed it. 
So I'm just going to yeah. fire away, right? So, but here's the thing. The system was reproducible every single time for that patient. So reproducibility is one of the key things um, for successful MR imaging, especially for dynamic MR imaging in the abdomen, right? So I highly, highly, highly urge folks to use that scanner capability. And, you know, the moment you track the bolus, we use a 14-second uh, gap after the peak, right? And then we use that time to give the breed instructions, and then the scanner scans. Well, that's great. And I think, actually, this is probably a good uh, good point to end it on. Uh, again, I want to thank uh, Ali and Kristen for be being with me on this uh, MRI cast. We, again, thank uh, Bronco Diagnostics for their unrestricted educational grant and sponsorship. And that'll just bring us to the end of this, uh, this podcast, folks. I want to thank everybody for listening. Thank everybody for participating. And... We'll see you all next time. We're out of here. You're just going to have to get used to it. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to MRIcast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics.